You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Appreciate you guys spending some time with us, as always. Also appreciate all the love you guys have given us on social media. If you get the chance, make sure you guys get to iTunes, write a review, and give us a rating. Make sure that stuff is all positive. Helps us out. Helps get the word of the podcast out there. This week's guest is a retired U.S. Army captain who his own personal struggle with PTSD led him to such organizations as Sierra Club Outdoors, Sierra Club Military, also is connected as a brand ambassador with North Face, and a man today who still helps veterans who are struggling with PTSD. It is Stacy Bear on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Stacy, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be on a podcast that I love to listen to and a little bit surreal. <laughs> we appreciate you listening. Just out of curiosity, how'd you find out about the podcast? Uh, through Griff. Oh, okay. So, who's been Combat Flip Flops. Combat yeah. Flip Flops. So I'm a, um, he's known about the podcast for a while and told me I should be listening. And I, I, tip, I do my best to do what Griff tells me to do because <laughs> I don't think Griff realizes. Griff doesn't know how to give a recommendation. He, he's still giving out orders. So it's best if you follow along. <laughs> And again, Griff was part of our Combat Flip Flops, an earlier episode here on the Hazard Ground. Make sure you go check it out. But we appreciate you listening, Stacy. And you know how this whole thing starts then. How did you get into the military? It's all I ever wanted to do. Really? When I was five years old. Yeah, it's all I ever wanted to do. When I was five years old, my grandpa was a Navy, Navy veteran. He was a CB in World War II. He was the coolest guy I'd ever met in my life. And in all my, you know, many travels at the age of five. And I thought I want to be just like this guy. And he's in the Navy, and that's what I'm going to do. And I had a great aunt, which was his wife's sister, who was also in World War II. And she had this crazy life, man. She she left central Nebraska. She's like, I'm going to get out of central Nebraska. She started teaching school when she was 16. World War II broke out. You know, she joined the Women's Army Corps. They sent her to Iowa. She said, I didn't join the Army to go to Iowa. They sent her to Missouri. She said, you guys got to be kidding me. Um, and so she found her way, ultimately, onto MacArthur's planning staff. And she ended up being in Papua New Guinea. She ended up helping to write the plans for a ground invasion of Japan. And it's one of the things that she tells me still keeps her up at night, thinking about what the casualty rate was that they figured, you know, what the appropriate casualty rate was going to be for the ground invasion of Japan. She's 98 years old. She's still alive. You know, she stayed in Tokyo for four years after, the, you know, and helped with the occupation and the rebuilding of Tokyo. And between she and my grandpa, I thought, man, the way to be this cool is to join the military. And I wanted to be in the Navy, but when it came time, I knew I could enlist or go through ROTC. I knew I didn't have the grades nor the, uh, nor the desire to go to one of the academies. I just wasn't that cool, I guess. And, um, and I was too tall for the Navy. They said, you've got to get waivers. And, uh, you know, all you had to do in the army was tie your shoes. And all you had to do for the Marines, I guess, was use Velcro and I happened to be wearing ties that, you know, shoes that had ties on them that day. So I ended up in the army uh, and that was it. And I thought I'd be there for the rest of my life and ended up doing ROTC at the university of Mississippi, stand fast Mississippians. And um, yeah, just uh, I, the first time I got out of the army in 2004, I was unable for whatever reason to deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan. I got what I call a consolation deployment to Bosnia, though certainly the people in Bosnia I don't think thought their war or their conflict was any sort of consolation. It was a great experience. I ran a counterterrorism team there. Absolutely loved my work. Tried to extend. I couldn't. 
uh, and declined the captain's course and assumed that by declining the captain's course coming home from Bosnia that they'd send me to Iraq or Afghanistan. They didn't. And I got out of the Army as an intelligence officer in 2004, which was crazy because they, they weren't they were stop laughing everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's, and, um, that's nutso how you were able to get out. Well, it was, it was a shock. And um, my old battalion commander it was my branch officer, you know, who, who was looking at those things. And um, I don't know if he thought he was doing me a favor, which I'm sure he did. And um, he so, so there I was. And then I went and I did landmine clearance. I was getting out and I didn't know what to do. And I wasn't done. Uh, traveling and I wasn't done, you know, with service. And so I Googled landline clearance because I had seen that in Bosnia and applied to the first three jobs, first, first three companies that came up on that Google search. And I got a job and with the Halo Trust. And right after 2004, uh, when I got out, I got out around 4th of July, I think was actually my last day in country in Germany and flew home. And by September, I was in Angola learning how to do explosive ordnance disposal work, did that. I got medically evacuated out of Angola about 10 months later with an unidentified liver illness. Got stationed next in the former Soviet state of Georgia in the breakaway Republic of Abkhazia. And it was in December of 2005 that on my Yahoo email account, I got recalled the United States Army out of the Individual Ready Reserve. Wow. Okay. Uh, down to four, yeah. You're, you're going so, too fast. So let's, let's back up. I, you, I mean, there's a lot here. I just want to kind of, uh, you know, invest some more time into some of it. That's just uh, the IRR thing we'll get to in more detail because it's kind of crazy. But, uh, you know, you talked about your family yeah. members and, you know, the legacy that they left behind. Was that pressure for you? You know, I didn't really see this pressure. I also had an uncle who was in Vietnam, and uh, he was a dentist. He was a Green Beret dentist, and he was also my dentist growing up, um, and orthodontist. And I had summer teeth, man. Boy, so you know, a, a Green Beret dentist just doesn't sound like a pleasant experience. You're talking about a guy who's hard as nails and the worst possible human experience you can go through in a dentist chair. Here, just sit here. Don't worry about it. It'll be painful. Just deal with it. Totally. And a pediatric <laughs> dentist at that. Uh, he, he's awesome. And his, and his name is Gail. And so, you know, it was nice to have another, another man with a woman's name to look up to. <laughs> so I, I think, I think where the real pressure came from was growing up with you know hockey town uh, on the border of Minnesota and in South Dakota with a name like Stacy and my mom made me figure skate far more than growing up with, with the family history. And, and my oh, brother no. joined the military. I know, right. The, oh. my, thank goodness I grew up to be six foot seven. But my, my brother joined the military before me. And like I said, my uncle and then my dad had uh, joined the Air Force for Vietnam, but had an allergic reaction to penicillin that led to brain clots. So he was out. But I don't think it, I don't think it, there was any pressure in a way to join the military. I never felt pressure to join the military. I, I just, I, you know, when people ask, like, why, why did you join the military? My response is, why didn't you? I mean, it, it just made, and, and I, don't, I don't mean that aggressively. It's just, I didn't think of anything else to do. Like, like nothing else made sense to me. You know, I mean, that's all I wanted to do was join the military for whatever reason. And I mean, like for some of the reasons I described, I mean, my, my granddad and my great uncle were just amazing people. My, uh, or my great aunt, excuse me, my uncle was an amazing guy. You know, my brother joined before me. So I, I think what it did was it just, I didn't have to explain it to anybody. Right. Unless I mm -hmm. wanted to. Somebody yeah. was like, why are you joining the military? It was like, yeah, it's, the, it's, it's the family business. Everybody does it. Yeah, it's, and, uh, it's crazy because it, everybody's got a different story on on how they get to the military. And w when you hear your story, like you said, it, it almost makes it easy. Like it's just for you, it was illogical not to be in the military. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. There was, and I mean, I, you know, and I think like a lot of veterans get out in, you have a mixed feeling about the military, right? I mean, on the one hand, it was the greatest thing for me. And on the other hand, you know, on, on good days, I'm super thankful for the time in and, and I've never not been thankful for the people I met in the military. I mean, some of the, some of my closest friends, some of the greatest people I've ever met were in the military. But on the other hand, you know, if I'm having a rough day, it's like you join the military, you get introduced to these amazing people, and then you got to write letters home to their wives and their parents about how they were killed. And, uh, and I have, you know, nightmares about seeing other people get killed. And I have nightmares of, you know, a little girl in Iraq who, um, by all accounts, the way that she had burns covering her entire body, except for her wrist down to her hands, her face, and her ankles down to her feet, certainly looked like somebody held that young woman, uh, you know, that young girl, three or four year old girl into a fire. And uh, as, as a means to, to, to torment her parents. And then when we show up, right, I mean, she's covered in gauze. The gauze hasn't been cleaned. She doesn't have any new dressings on it. And her body is, you know, the flesh underneath the gauze is necrotizing. New skin is trying to grow over the gauze. And we make a decision, you know, we're like, well, what can we do to help this young lady? Because she's otherwise this young girl, otherwise she's going to die. And that's for four dudes to hold her down. And our medic, who happened to be a woman, an incredible, incredibly strong woman, uh, emotionally, mentally, and physically. And she begins to tear the gauze off this young girl, right? And it's ripping new skin away and it's pulling necrotized dead flesh off her body. And, and you know, she's a, I have an 18-month-old at home. I cannot imagine the pain that this young girl was in. I can't imagine having to watch other people do this to my daughter. And eventually we just had to stop, right? I mean, there's blood everywhere. She's screaming. You know, we've got big guys holding back her, 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 her dad and her uncles because they want to kill us because they think we're trying to hurt her and we're trying to help. And, uh, and that's one of the worst things I've ever seen. And that's, you know, the United States Army showed me that. And the United States Army showed me that because the people of the United States elected a government that said the best use, the best, highest in use of our military is to send them to Iraq right now. And, and I volunteered, right? I mean, we all signed that blank check. We're not the Vietnam generation. We didn't get drafted. We chose to do that in 1996. Thanks to my dad's signature on a fax when I was 17 years old, I chose to do that. And, and that's a tough thing to reconcile. That's a tough thing to reconcile when you're 19. It's a tough thing to reconcile when you're 38 years old, 10 years out of the military. But at the same time, you know, when we decided to stop that and give the girl as much care as we could without continuing forward that, we passed the hat. And uh, it was about a thousand bucks that we, you know, gave to the family to go to the hospital. And we all knew that that young girl might not make it to the hospital. We all knew there might be uh, a different way that uh, that family would choose to spend the money. But, um, I mean, I think it speaks to the character of the team that I was with. And, and we all know, too, right? I mean, I think the dirty, dark secret of the veteran community, right, is we come from the rest of America. We look like the rest of America, which means there are some real dirtbags and horrible people who join the military because there are some real horrible people and dirtbags in this country. But by and large, the majority of the people, you know, the overwhelming majority of the people I served with were fantastic people. And I, um, and they've, and, and, and the people I get to keep meeting, right. You meet a veteran and, and hopefully it's for me, most of the time, it's an immediate connection, right? I don't care when you serve, where you serve. I know you serve and, and we can, and that's something we can share and talk about and develop a friendship and a relationship over. And that is incredible. 
So it's um, it was a great experience. Okay, so uh, so much there. God, and the emotion. Um, go back to your first deployment in Bosnia. You didn't get to Iraq in 2004, but they send you to Bosnia. Did you find that deployment fulfilling, or was it one of those things where it automatically fell short because you weren't in the mix that everybody else was in? Yeah, I mean, I think the start of it, right, is it, it felt like I, I somehow, because I was in the strategic intel unit, right, which is, you know, growing up and you join the military and you want to do all these things and, and right, like you go into ROTC and people tell you, well, this isn't a real military. And then, then you go you go to officer basic course and they tell you, well, this isn't a real military. And then you get to your unit and you're like, is this going to be the real military? And it's the strategic intel unit, right? It's not the 101st, it's not the 10th, it's not the big red one. It's not the 82nd Airborne. I mean, it's, it's not the third. You know, it's, it's not all these, these units that you know about. And people are like, well, this isn't the real military. And it's like, fuck, when, when am I going to get to the real army, you know? Mm-hmm. But every step of the way is actually the real army. There's just the thing is the army is a huge beast, right? And, and it's like, you know, the, the story of the, all the blind guys, you know, trying to touch an elephant. And depending on where you touch, you think it's something else. The army's just like that. So finally, yeah, I mean, I was super disappointed that I wasn't in the fight, right? If you train to be a butcher your whole life and you never get to cut a pig, you're going to be really pissed off. And um, I was upset, but when I got there, you know, there was a great mission. People were working really hard. Um, it, was a, it was a NATO mission as well. I got to work with a lot of great people from other countries, and we all knew that we weren't in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's where we all wanted to be because that's where our buddies were. That's where the fight was. And when you're trained to be a soldier, you, you, you hopefully train to be a warrior, and you want to be at the fight. But you have to give yourself you have to give yourself the opportunity to to go in at a hundred percent every day, and 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 when I got my head around that in Bosnia, that's what I did. And yeah, I felt guilty taking tax free money. My parents came to visit me over Christmas. You know, <laughs> um, they're like, "Oh, we want to go to Bosnia. We have great you know great memories of the 1984 Serie of Olympics, so we're going to come." And I'm like, "Yeah, but it's a war zone." And they're like, "Actually, we just got our tickets on Air Australia." So, you know, I mean, that that was a different experience, but um, I think it set the groundwork for me for, in many ways, maybe for the Adventure Not War Project, because what it taught me was there are regular people trying to live regular lives, and there are a lot of beautiful things in these countries, even if they've been wracked by war and disaster. How do we see that? And um, so, yeah, I was pissed, but it was a good mission, and we were doing the right thing, and there were great people there. And um, so... You know, I, I remember leaving the army when I flew home from Germany. You know, I wasn't in my uniform. I'm just another kid on a flight from Frankfurt. You know, I was, I was flying to visit my brother in Hartford, Connecticut, before I went home to South Dakota, and it was weird. You know, and I was like, "Holy crap! I've missed the war of my generation." And I think in 2004, we all thought it was still going to be quick, right? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> even though it had already been three years in Afghanistan, and. I was, I was amazed and I thought, well, that's it. You know, I've missed, I've missed my, my worst generation. And I was working in Angola and one of the guys I worked with was an Israeli. And, um, when Fallujah kicked off later in 2004, I said, I should be there. He said, what are you talking about? You wrote a blank check. You handed it over to your government. They took care of you for four years and they let you go. And, uh, you got to move on with your life. But, when I got recalled at the end of 2005, as disturbing as it was and frustrating as it was, because I, I was living a different life, right? I'd moved on. Mm-hmm. But there was also a huge, there was a huge sense of relief. And uh, a lot of the guys that I worked with in landmine clearance who, were, um, hit, who had served in other militaries, predominantly the United Kingdom and the British military, those guys all got it. 
you know, they all understood why I felt that relief. And uh, it's a weird thing to talk about, right? Feeling relief that you that you got called back to go to war, but I, I, but that's what it was. Well, most people would think it's the exact opposite. I actually, my first deployment, I was with uh, I was a captain at the time, and I was with a major, and she got called off the IRR, and she had been out of the military for like eight years. Like she, she was in a totally different. I mean, for you, it was a year later, but this was an individual who was way removed from the military. Um, and it was just like you move on to that next phase of your life, and to have that thing come back to you again, you know, I, I, you seem to have taken it as a blessing, but most people take that as a, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Totally, and and I and I respect and appreciate and understand that thought process. I mean, and I was pissed on the one hand, right? I mean, I'm I'm living in Amkazi, I've got a different career, I'm seeing somebody, you know, I think she's great, she thinks I'm swell. Things seem to be progressing, and then all of a sudden, your life is interrupted. And and I like yeah, like you said, I'd been out for you know about twenty months at that time, um, total, and it was frustrating. And I think if you've been out eight years or ten years, you know, may, you have a, you have this whole other life, and that's even more frustrating. And I think a lot of people didn't even realize they were still in the individual ready reserve. And I mean, it was interesting, right? I mean, you, I met I met people. There was this one guy who. Like, had been unemployed since the Clinton reduction in forces, or, you know, in 1992, um, and living in his mother's basement. And, and for some people, it was interesting. Like, they were so excited to get called up because they had something to do. They had something to live for. And there was another guy who had just got laid off from his factory job. Um, you know, he had, been, he had been a shift supervisor, and he got laid off, and this worked out great for him. And that guy, I mean, between you and I, was a dirtbag, um, you know, couldn't lead a gerbil out of a out of a brown paper bag, and he ended up going back for two or three more deployments and getting tax free money, and not really doing anything. And that and and to be and to watch that, you know, is hugely frustrating and hugely and and that's a minority, but but you saw it happen, and it, and it was super frustrating. And and like the guy who you know so, but at the same time, again, you're going to get out of an experience hopefully what you put into it, right, and, mil- sure. and that's a tough thing to say in the military because. Because other there are other guys, right? I mean, three guys out of our unit, you know, uh, Nathan Baco, Brian Freeman, Shane Mahaffey, they got called out of the IRR and they didn't go home, and that's fucked. And that's like, like I can talk about what a great experience I had in Iraq, but I mean, and I learned a lot, but I saw a lot of pain, and like those those guys' families deserve to have them there, and they're not there. And they had already gotten out of the military. And that's one of the things where I have to also, you know, it's like even, even skiing in Iraq. I mean, I got to the, you know, when we got to the top, I was like, okay, I can let go a lot of these negative emotions and these negative memories. But then I remembered, I was like, I got to hold on to a few of these things that hurt, man, because that helps motivate me on who I am and what I do every day. And I don't, I don't want to forget that pain. I don't want to forget that hurt because I don't want anybody else to have to go through that if they don't have to. Sure. So it, 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 it's not an easy, well, this is how I feel and this is how I feel about it every day, right? I mean, we want there to be that binary choice. This is good and this is bad. That's bad and this is good. But, I mean, you served. You lived through life. You know that life is just unfortunately not that easy. Yeah. Take me through the process of when you get that email to your Yahoo account to when you actually get in a uniform and what you're told, where you're going, because I, I don't know about it, so I'm just curious how the actual process itself goes. Yeah, I mean, I got the email on my Yahoo account. I don't use Yahoo anymore. I still uh, do. Don't hate me. <laughs> no, I mean, you didn't get recalled after your Yahoo email account. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, I'm, 
that day, right, I was, I was getting ready to go out into the field for a week um, doing this landmine clearance uh, and these high mountain passes. I'm driving down Abkhazia. I, my boss is coming up from Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. He's driving the girl I'm seeing at the, at the time, and um, she's in the passenger seat. We stop in the middle of the road because there's just not that much traffic in Abkhazia. I walk around to the side of the door. I give her a kiss. I say, hey, Dave, you know, and uh, say hi to her. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be gone for a week. And, um, oh, by the way, when, when I get back, uh, I, I have to leave and go to Iraq. And that probably means we're, we're probably not going to keep seeing each other or whatever. But um, we'll talk about it when I get back in a week. And I get back in my car and I leave, right? Because my mind has been blown, right? Like, like one view of my life that I think I'm heading down has now been completely changed. And I just casually mention that because I don't know how else to mention it to my boss and the girl I'm seeing at the time and get in my car and drive away for a week, right? So you can imagine what it was like on the backside of, of coming home in, uh, at that time. And then, you know, I basically I was just waiting for my orders at that point, and I was also waiting for a visa to get into South Sudan at the time for work. And the orders came through while I was in uh, Uganda doing work for the Halo Trust. Um, and a porter, I was drinking a lion's head beer in a hotel overlooking the the headwaters of the Nile, which is now under a dam. And the porter runs in and he like, the orders got faxed to me at this hotel in Uganda where I was doing, you know, where I was, I was doing work every day for the Halo Trust. And, and that was it. And I flew home and flew to Fort Bragg and I got to Bragg and we were, you know, open bay barracks that had been condemned mere months before they had this massive IRR recall you know, it was like Ollie Ollie income free. And, you know, of course, because of my first name, they try and put me in the woman's barracks right away, <laughs> which plays itself out, which plays itself out, you know, over a year later when I'm trying to out process the army and on my medical paperwork is this note that I have to go, you know, see the OBGYN and get a pap smear. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking to the orderly and I'm like, I don't need a pap smear. I'm good. And like it's on your paperwork. I'm like, yeah, I know it's on my paperwork, but I'm not a woman. They're like, it's on your paperwork. I'm like, I'm not going back there. They're like, yeah, you are. You're going back there. Like, God bless the medical orderly, right? But if you're a medical orderly, you take shit from nobody, and you get to order everybody around, right, regardless of your rank. So I go back, and the doc's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, the orderly sent me back. It's on my paperwork. But so anyway, um, yeah, and we're in these open bay barracks and, you know, going through the training of civil affairs and then, Three months later, you know, after all that training and one day of cultural and language immersion training in Arabic, uh, we deploy in Iraq. And, um, you know, less than, you know, two weeks later, we had the first casualty, and that was Nathan Baco and Shane Mahaffey. And, um, it, you know, it went up and downhill from there. Oh, hold on, Stacey. I, I do have to ask because I think everybody listening is thinking it. What happened with your girlfriend at the time? What was the conversation when, when you got back? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was good. I mean, um, was she understanding it, it or? Well, not really. You know, she wasn't <laughs> from the states. She didn't join. You know, she she didn't have she come from a martial community or family, and you know, so there was this. We knew this guy who was like the Belgian ambassador to Georgia, and he or or was worked for the worked for the worked for the Belgian consulate in Georgia. And he was like, look, man, we can get you, you know, you, you can get political asylum, you know, you, you can stay in Belgium. And I, and I was like, man, that's really nice of you to offer that. But like, I, I want to go home. 
you know, I don't want to stay my life away from the United States. And my buddies have gone to Iraq and Afghanistan and y'all signed up for eight years of active, you know, service. And I'm still within that. So for me, again, it's really different than the major you served with, right? She had gone beyond the eight years of active service that we all signed up for or of service that we signed up for. Um, so, you know, I, she was upset, right? You know, I mean, it was, it was a non-starter. This was pretty much the end of the relationship. Right. So, um, you know, we kept in touch for a little while and, um, an incredible person. And, um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't to be, I ended up, I ended up when I got back to the States, I ended up kind of starting this. Yeah. Other little fling. And, and that ended on match.com when she got on match.com and I was in Iraq. So I made an account and poked her and that's how we broke up. But you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I've, uh, you know, I, I have an mate now, you know, it's it's really cheesy, but that song, you know, what is it? That Garth Brooks song. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Unanswered yeah. prayers. Yep. Yeah. I mean that. I like, and I love country music, and I don't know if I would necessarily consider Garth Brooks country music. I'll probably get some comments on that. And and you know, Merle Haggard is more my scene for country, and Hank Three versus Hank Junior. But um, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that, right? I mean, it's a great song, and I you know. I've got just an absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing partner uh, who I'm lucky enough to have as my wife. And, um, and who knows? Had I never been to war, I probably never would have gone to graduate school. Had I not gone to graduate school, I wouldn't have got a job in Boulder, Colorado with a company called Veterans Green Jobs. Had I not moved to Boulder, Colorado, I never would have met my wife. I never would have started climbing. So, you know, I can look back and make meaning out of all these things, but, um, I don't want to ask any of the families, you know, any of the gold star families to try and do that same exercise. Sure, yeah. You, you mentioned uh, that you got to Iraq and you took two casualties fairly quickly. Uh, what happened and what was the impact on you of those casualties? Yeah. So, you know, a civil affairs unit and, and I, I let people know with civil when I, that I did civil affairs and I'm always a little hesitant to share with people because I know some people had great experiences with civil affairs and some people had negative experiences. And it's kind of like the IRR, right? I mean, when I showed up, so one of the things I should talk about briefly with the IRR, when I showed up uh, the day after I woke up in the men's barracks, once they realized I wasn't a woman, uh, <laughs> and even again, the orderly just handed me my stuff, told me the barracks to go to and, and like looked at me, right? And I am not a feminine looking person no. that I'm aware of. <laughs> and I, and I like, and I, and I, they sent me to the woman's barracks and I walked in and I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is the new army. And they're like, what are you doing here? And I was like, this is the barracks. But anyway, so the morning, the next morning I go in for my, my in processing, right? Cause I got in the night before and they're like, are you, and I don't know if this was protocol, but they're like, are you ready for your drug test for your urinalysis? I was like, what do you mean? Am I ready? Like if I smoke pot now, can I get out of this? And they're like, no, we just, you know, we realize like the recall can be kind of a quick process. So if you want to wait, on the urinalysis, you can. So somebody somewhere, and like even a PT test, right? They were like, don't push yourself too hard. We don't want to get you hurt. So like the IRR, you know, I mean, there are people showing up who may or may not have been physical, physically ready to, to go to war. So it was a really interesting, you know, I mean, it was just kind of a total shit show. And, um, and, and, you know, 2006, when we went, I mean, it, there wasn't much of a strategy and people didn't know what we were doing. And the, and the strategy, we never really had a long-term strategy in Iraq or Afghanistan. Right. I mean, especially in Iraq, it was weapons of mass destruction. And then it was like, ah, oh, shit, there's no weapons of mass destruction. 
And then it was global war on terror. And then it was like, well, actually, maybe we've created more terrorism and then we have. And then it's like, well, we're going to rebuild peace and democracy here. And it's like, what? So we never really knew what we were doing in Iraq. And one of the things that, uh, and I can't speak for Afghanistan because I didn't deploy there, but one of the things I'll say about Iraq is that the small unit level, people achieved their goals. Yes. And did so incredibly well. I, I can At personally level, attest to that, yes. Right. At the company level and below, and sometimes all the way up to the battalion. And, and you had some great brigade commanders, but beyond that, there was no, like, what the hell were we doing? How did it all fit together? And so as long as you could get through the day focused on doing your mission and getting your men and women home safely at the end of every day or at the end of every night, you did great. But, and, and I think at the small unit level, there are massive gains made. We were winning over the populace. Uh, we were creating great inroads. With, and, and the reason we were winning over the populace is because the people in Baghdad and Iraq were by and large really good people mm-hmm. who wanted good things for their, for, their, for their cities and their communities and their neighborhoods and their country. And so you could connect with people at a great level. But that never aggregated to success. Because at, the, at, that, at that large unit, at, at brigade, and, and I had, I mean, you know, Colonel J.B. Burton was a phenomenal brigade commander. But at that divisional level, it just didn't aggregate into success, even though there were some great division generals. You know, I, I got to serve under, and, 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 and MNFI commanders, right? I mean, I got to serve under Odierno. I got to work with, with Petraeus, who I know later on kind of saw his reputation. But I tell you, you know, when we were in the fight, I really liked Odierno and I really liked Petraeus and I got to work a little bit with general, you know, general Casey as well, who wasn't necessarily a bad guy either. And, but somehow that small unit level didn't, didn't work. And, but it was such a mess that when those casualties happened, uh, and it was really just kind of the start of routine IED use. And then we were there when, when they started using EFPs, right? The explosively formed projectiles. I mean, it, you know, it, it was hard. And I think, you know, you meet these guys, and again, my, my first thought was, what, what do we ever do? What do we ever tell Shane and Brian's, and, and later on Brian when he died, which was actually much later in the deployment, you know, or, or Vaca, what do we tell their families about why they died? And I think it boils down to all quiet on the Western front, right? Like, you don't really ever need another war novel. Eric or Marx nailed it. You end up not fighting for an ideology, right? You fight for the guy to the left and the guy to the right. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, when I try and think and understand why I was there, much beyond that is when I typically start going down a really dark path. And I think ultimately we've got to figure out, we have to go down that path as a country. Um, well, part of that, Stacy, like- let me cut you off here for a second. Part of that is, and, and you know, we've touched on this topic a little bit on the podcast in general. But we are so conditioned, not only as a military, um, but I think as an American society, to determine an outcome, to have a finite outcome to anything. And in, right. you know, as, as far as us in the military, mission accomplished, yes, mission accomplished, no. And, and that's the terms of what we measure things on. And when America looks at war in general, did we win or did we lose? And I think America deals better with either outcome than the gray area in the middle. And that's where the struggle is with Iraq. And you even go back to Vietnam. You know, right. there is no finite outcome. And what, what sits on both sides can be debated reasonably by really smart people, but it'll end you up in the same exact spot you started. And, and that's troublesome so, for our people. 
Right. And that's why, in a lot of ways, that's why I wanted to do, you know, this, you know, what became Adventure Now War, that's where that came from was, well, I don't know if we won or lost, but I know there's some beautiful mountains over there and a, and a part of Iraq that is relatively stable. And I want to share with people that there's a lot of beauty in this country and there's a lot of good people there. So I'm going to, I want to go do that. And I want to take a couple of my friends with me and, uh, who, who are also really into backcountry skiing and who are willing to hopefully help share with the American people and the rest of the world that, yeah, Iraq's a pretty messed up place in a lot of ways. And, and the United States probably had a big role in that, but maybe we can also have a role in highlighting the beauty and getting more people to go to, to parts of Iraq that are stable. And I mean, I got to tell you, it was the trippiest thing, right? At the end of the, at the, at the, at the end of the expedition, we had an extra day in our beal, an evening in our beal before we flew out and we're taking a walk around town and it looks just like Baghdad, right? I mean, it's, it's very similar and you know, I don't have a weapon. I don't have a convoy nearby. And, uh, I see, I see a road sign like all throughout the, all throughout the trip. I kept seeing road signs for Baghdad and it was crazy to think like I could go down to the Erbil airport, rent a car and just drive to Baghdad. And in a place that 10 years ago, you know, I never, I never would have conceived of like getting in a Humvee and driving up to, to, to Erbil so that I could find my way over to Shoman so I could go, you know, skin up a mountain and ski back down it. But that, Part of it, and, and for me, part of the reason I wanted to go to Venture Now War, and, and it's a selfish reason, is to rewrite the end of my time in Iraq and to give myself a little bit of that definitive victory in the sense that here's a place that isn't going to have a negative hold on me for the rest of my life, even though really bad things happen there. It's going to be a place that I'm going to interject beauty and a little bit of understanding, hopefully, in uh, and doing something that, that I find to be invigorating and, and hopefully other people find to be invigorating. And I'm going to share that experience with some of my friends who had some of their worst days in Iraq. And now we're going to go have some of the best days in Iraq. And hopefully over time we can get more people coming over. And I mean, I mean, you know, whether you're paddling down in Basra, you know, skiing in Kurdistan, there's mountain biking, there's, there's rafting to happen. There's all these beautiful things that can happen there. And, and we're going to know we won right when in 10 years from now, when you have on the podcast some dude who's, who's opened up the first microbrew in Shulman or Erbil, you know what I mean? Right. And so it's, it, for me, it started out as a really selfish thing. And, and I, and I own that, I admit that, but hopefully it, it's something that has more than just me getting better, but that other people see the beauty in this country that can be there and maybe feel like they want to go do it. And, and maybe they want to go back and maybe the next time somebody says something like, well, we should have just fucking bombed the whole country and made glass out of it. They say, Hey, you know what? I can, I can understand where you're coming from, but there's a lot of good people over there and, and the world's a better place when they're in it. Stacey, getting a sense of who you are just from talking to you. Uh, I, I'm going to ask this question and it may be kind of loaded, but do you feel that if you had a clearly defined mission and it was clearly a success, Despite the casualties and all the bad things you saw, you would feel differently? Like, would, would, do you still think PTSD would haunt you the way it did if you were able to, to have some clear, ascertained outcome? Um, you know, I, I think some of the things would continue to haunt me no matter what. Because war is a, war is a brutal, violent, horrifically dirty, smelly, exhausting prospect. Right. And... 
I think when you see certain things, and, and I, I would put myself maybe at the 50th percentile of what I've seen. Right? I just had one deployment. I wasn't in Fallujah. I wasn't in the Battle of Mosul. You know, I wasn't in Anaconda. Um, what sort of things are you talking about that you, you saw, though? Well, like, you know, if you've ever seen a 50 caliber machine gun rip a person in half, that's, that's, that's pretty fucked up. If you ever see, um, you know, if you're, you know, I was in my office one day, um, the first six months I was at Baghdad International Airport uh, as, a, as a B team leader. And then six months, the, the second half of my, my tour, I was an A team leader in uh, Katamia neighborhood. And I was out at Fob Justice, which is a tiny little fob. Yep. I know one day when I was in my office, yeah, totally. Fob just us, baby. Um, so, <laughs> so um, you know, I, there was a, my office was right next to a Navy uh, EOD office, right? An EOD compound. And there were two guys and they were working on something and it, it went wrong. And the guy who, there was one guy who was looking at the mortar and his body was gone, right? Mostly eviscerated. Uh, close contact with the mortar doesn't doesn't end well, and the other guy, um, you know, had his uh, you know sucking chest wound, intestines out, um, you know, uh, double femoral bleeding, totally torn apart. And I was the first responder. I was the first person on the scene. Like that's something that haunts me. You know, I, I've seen a, a dog eating a, uh, somebody who had been killed and thrown in a trash pile, and the dog was eating the guy's neck out. If if I touch my neck wrong or if I'm tired, I mean, I still have nightmares about that. So I think some of those things, regardless of the, of the clear outcome of the war, are, are always going to be there. Right. And, and, and anybody could give anybody else could give another dozen answers or more of worse or more horrific things than, than what I've seen and done. Um, and I think one of the things we have to recognize is that how we got trauma might be unique, but that we have trauma is not unique. And I don't think it's a helpful exercise to try and say who's, who's got the worst trauma. Right. True. Um, you got trauma. Let's figure out a way to help you move through it. Um, embrace the pain and, and find a way to move forward towards joy. And what does that look like? And it's going to be a little different for everybody though. I think time outside is a key component for all people, especially here in this country where we have such a beautiful country. Um, but I think all over, I mean, like I said, I mean, part of this was to show people that how beautiful Iraq is too. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the anger around the post-traumatic stress would be lessened. Sure. I think the struggles of adjustment would be a little bit less. But I say that, but then you look at the guy like George Mallory, right, who comes home from World War I, and the British won. And Mallory's fucked, right? And he, he can't find his place in society, and, and he goes back to the mountains, and he ends up losing his life on Everest, right? And he has the pithy comment, you know, why do you climb Everest? It's, well, because it's there. Well, what else? I mean, that, yeah, sure, that sounds like a great comment, but I mean, look into it a little, di- a little bit deeper, right? What else is there for Mallory coming home from World War One? Yeah, he's got a victory. The British won, but how, how pyrrhic is that victory? So, so I think that's a hard question, right? I mean, I think, yes, I think I would have been less angry. Uh, I think I would have been able to say, you know, to Brian's family, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, your son's death haunts me every day, but hopefully you can find some level of gratification, which doesn't seem like an appropriate word in that we accomplished X and the world is a better place because of it. Because I can't say that to them now. The world was a better place when Brian Freeman was in it. And now he's not. 
and he sacrificed his life so that others could live. And there, you know, he left an incredible legacy. There's a, you know, an Iraqi kid that Brian was working with that ultimately came back and got, you know, heart surgery that he needed. And, uh, and that was Brian, but that heart surgery was going to happen whether Brian, you know, because Brian deployed to Iraq, that young kid lived. What happened to Brian? And, and ultimately, uh, Brian was killed in, um, in 2007 in Karbala. There were a number of terrorists who looked Western, had stolen a number of Western uniforms, gotten themselves onto a base, and then attacked a meeting that was happening in Karbala. Uh, you know, people were on the fob, so they weren't necessarily armed or ready for an attack. And uh, they tried to kidnap Brian and Brian fought incredibly hard. They ended up throwing Brian out on the road uh, on a highway. He had multiple bullet wounds. And to the credit of passing Iraqis, picked him up and got him in a car and tried to get him medical help. Uh, and Brian bled out. So it was a horrific way, but Brian, you know, Brian wasn't going to get kidnapped and Brian was going to fight all the way out. And uh, Brian had been an all army athlete had been on the bobsled team. His driver ended up winning gold, um, in, you know, later on at this, at this last Sochi Olympics, which was pretty incredible. And, um, but, you know, and I'm sure many other American service members owe their lives to the fact that Brian fought so hard, but that's cold comfort to a widow and two kids who grow up without their dad. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think that's, it's, and, it's incredibly you know, and that's unfair. One of the challenges, right? Right. And that's one of the challenges when I come home, right? Especially I came home, I was a single guy, right? I mean, one of the reasons I was so relieved to go to war, I don't think I, like if I got recalled now with an 18 month old at home or, or however old a kid at home, I don't think I'd feel relieved at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm with both my deployments. I was single. And now that I'm a father, um, the idea of deploying again now seems so like just not cool. Like it's just not a comfortable feeling at all. Leaving behind all that stuff when, when you're single, and then you don't have to worry about yourself. I think it, it, it has a different perspective. Uh, and that doesn't mean that any of what you're feeling, you know, would have changed if you had a family. It probably would have been worse at that time. But because you have a lot more empathy once you have kids, you know, it's a it's a, it's a strange kind of right. thing that happens to you. But, yeah, I, I guess I wonder, as far as your particular struggle with PTSD and what you go through, I mean, how do you manage the day to day? what's still popping up in your head day to day and what isn't and, and where are you with all this? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think there's a lot of growth, right. From, and you know, and if I think Stacey Barry would just come home from Iraq, listens to this podcast, he might be like, what the hell is this guy talking about? You know, going back to Iraq and skiing and, you know, finding forgiveness and grace and all this like, fuck him. Right. He, he doesn't understand. He must not have seen anything. He's not, a, he's not a real warrior. Did he see even, even in real combat? I mean, I think one of the things that happens, right. Is if we're lucky, we, we get into a place and if we work at it, we can grow and we can evolve and we can find opportunities and people who can help us down that path. And at some level, we've got to take responsibility for ourselves and that growth. And I think there are unfortunately men and women who there's a block, right? And they're not able to ever take that um, personal accountability. And, and that's not necessarily a sign of weakness. I think it's just a sign of the debilitating mental and physical trauma that they've witnessed and are a part of. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
So, you know, I, I had a really interesting experience with the VA. I went in, I finally went into the VA a few years after I got back. The first time I went to the VA, I got stuck in between the sliding doors of the Philadelphia VA. And, um, you know, because the VA, especially in 2007, right, it smells like, smells like piss and death and old people. And, um, and I hated hospitals and I got stuck and I hyperventilated and I left and I went and got care through the university system. But I finally make it to the VA in like spring of 2010, I get diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And ultimately the army comes back to me and says, it's not the army's fault. <laughs> and one of the things that is so debilitating about the, you know, and even then, right. So in 2010, when I filled out the paperwork for PTSD, they said, what is the incident that created post-traumatic stress disorder and, and, and name the, the name, social security number, rank of the American that you witnessed die and tell us about the situation. You know, depending on who you are in the military and where you're at, like we were moving through a battlefield, right? And so you see somebody like, like the, you know, the Navy explosive ordnance disposal tech, you know, I've got both my knees trying to find a way to get to the femoral while I'm trying to deal with the sucking chest wound and talking to the guy for shock before anybody else shows up. I didn't stop to think to ask the guy his name or his social security number. Right. You know, I didn't be like, hey, man, um, I realize I'm applying pressure on some pretty fucked up situations here. And, you know, I'm one of the funniest situations in that, right? It was the guy who's like, touch my dick, man. Like, am I going to be able to have kids? Are my cock and balls there? I can't feel my legs. I'm worried about my dick. I'm like, your dick looks fine. He's like, touch my dick. I'm like, I'm not going to touch your dick. He's like, just grab my dick. So I know I can feel it. And I was like, all right. You know, so I'm like, Stacy, I laugh because anecdotally I found out on this podcast and I did not know it before. That is the number one question. Every guy asks after the explosion is my junk. Okay. Without a doubt. Without and a so doubt. I grabbed the guys. And it's, and I mean, that's the thing. Like there are parts of, this is the thing that's hard to understand for people is that there are parts of war that are incredibly hilarious and funny and parts of war that are incredibly rewarding, right? Like a combat situation, you've never felt more on top of the world if you and your buddies have survived a combat situation yep. in gunfire, right? It's like, fuck yeah. So I grabbed the guy's dick and he's like, ah, why are you grabbing my dick so hard? I'm like, you just told me to grab your dick. <laughs> and he's like, all right, man, touch my balls. I'm like, dude, you're good. Um, so, you know, um, so, but anyway, and I think it's one of the things that actually uh, makes a lot of good service members. Is you, you talk to a lot of guys and gals who serve, and a lot of people had pretty traumatic lives before they joined the military. Yeah, not everybody by by a long shot, but um, a friend of mine who unfortunately committed suicide two years ago. You know, as he and I got to know each other better, and he felt comfortable sharing me his journey. You know, this is a guy who got the ever living shit kicked out of him as a kid growing up in rural Iowa, in a wrestling town. His dad, his uncle, and his older brother just beat the guy on a routine basis. And then this kid joins the Marines, and then he goes to Fallujah. I mean, what is this? And then he goes to the VA, and if he shares with the VA that he was abused as a kid, they're going to say, well, your PTS, maybe it's not from the Marine Corps, right? Yeah. And, and when I shared these things with, you know, and I couldn't remember the exact name and individuals. And the other thing was at the time, like, I'm not supposed to have PTS from watching kids get killed or kids go through this or seeing dead bodies or, you know, like, um, so, you know, I mean, early on, 
Um, I dealt with my post-traumatic stress issues primarily through a lot of cocaine. And, uh, you know, I was a big guy. I had a fun party trick called eight ball on a wall, which is pretty self-explanatory. I'd do an eight ball and then try and run through a wall. Um, great party trick at the time. Um, not necessarily good for other people's rental deposits, but, you know, <laughs> something to talk about. And uh, probably didn't help my shoulder. Um, but, you know, and then eventually that, you know, it doesn't work. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of booze as well. And that doesn't work. And it ultimately, you know, I was in Boulder, Colorado. I was working for a company called Veterans Green Jobs, a buddy that I had deployed with, a guy named Chuck, who was also tall and, and kind of lanky like me. You know, we were talking about, you know, I was like, you know, a lot of suicidal ideation. Um, I'd, I, you know, slept poorly at night. And sometimes, you know, if uh, somebody tried to come in at night and, you know, cuddle up or whatever, I'd freak out. So I always told, I told my girlfriend, who's now my wife, for a long time, you know, if I'm already asleep, you've got to throw a pillow at me so that I know that you're coming in. Cause I, you know, I had flipped out, I'd freaked out at night. You know, I, I'd been super jumpy. I'd swung on people who, who came up on me while I was working or, you know, focused on a task because I thought, you know, I was being attacked. I'd draw down on people. I'd reach for a weapon that wasn't there. I was, you know, hypervigilant, all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, none of that, you know, the VA is like, oh, no, 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 that came from the army. You know, it's like, it came from landmine clearance. Or it came from this or that. And like, fair enough. I'm an Ole Miss fan. Like I graduated from Ole Miss and like anybody who's followed Ole Miss football or baseball or basketball and the heartbreak we've had over the last 20 years, <laughs> like not to make light of post-traumatic stress, but it is a very stressful team to, to be in love with. Sure. Um, so, so I don't know if that, if it came from that, you know, according to the VA, but, um, and ultimately for me, man, it was, um, it was rock climbing. You know, my buddy Chuck got me out rock climbing that allowed me to be in the moment and allowed me to be fully present and not feel, um, fear about the past or guilt about the future. It allowed me to stop questioning from time to time why I lived when other people who had seemingly much more to live for did have much more to live for. That's not a seeming, that's an, like, I think that's an objective reality. Uh, I'm fine making that objective statement and saying that's an absolute, why did they die? And I, and I live and all of a sudden I didn't have to, you know, I was released from those things in the moment. How close uh, were you to suicide? On. So, you know, I think I was, I think I was pretty close. I mean, you know, like, like a lot of guys and gals in the military, you're like, you figure out what the plan is, right? It's like, like sure. I had the five paragraph op order in my head. How am I going to do this? How am I going to minimize the impact on other people? How, you know, what's the communications plan for this going to look like? You know, when am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? How am I going to make sure, for example, you know, I thought about things like I don't want to be found right away. You know, I'm not going to, you know, slip my wrists in a bathtub because that's going to create a problem for other people. Um, you know, I, like I knew I was smart enough not to have a sidearm in the house or even a hunting rifle or shotgun in the house um, because I didn't want it to happen in a rage, in a drunken rage or just coked out of my head, right? So I was like, how do I, how do I, you know, where do I go? How do I get myself to a place where nobody's going to find me for a while? And I just disappeared. Right. Cause I think a lot of it for a lot of guys, at least for me, it was, I didn't so much want to die as much as I just wanted to disappear. You know, I just didn't want to be a burden. I didn't want to be, I, I didn't want to just battle anymore with who I was outside of the military. And, and it's interesting as my life has gotten better, you know, by real steps, um, and, and I've found people in a community and people who care for me deeply and 
recognize that I don't have to be alone at this and that I'm not the only person who's dealt with this and that there's a way through and it does get better uh, or it can get better. Um, there have been times, man, where I thought my life is so good and so beautiful now. And I've come back from so much shit. And there are times, right, you feel guilty about feeling bad because you don't feel like you've been through enough as your buddy, you know? And you're like, well, crap, why do I feel so bad? That guy's been through everything that seems so worse. And we, we measure our traumas, and, and that's a bunch of bullshit. But, and I thought, you know, my life is so good right now. And I'm so worried that I'm going to slide back to that place or that I'm going to stumble or that it's going to fail and I'm going to get to that place where I was. That maybe I should just end it now and I should go out on top. And so suicide's a really it's a really sneaky beast, man. And it's a it's a difficult illness because it can get you when you're really low and it can get you when you're feeling really good. And it can get you anywhere in between. And um, you know, my buddy Chuck was like, you know what? Make a plan and let's but put it off and let's go out and do something and let's see if we can't find another way forward. And I think the, the challenge I struggle with now, man, is, and I think the challenge a lot of veterans, and not just veterans, but everybody, because one of the things is when you're in the military, right, you have immediate dignity. You know your role, you know how to get praised, and you have dignity. And I think a lot of people in this world are just trying to find dignity. They just want to be part of something. They want to be part of something that's a little bit bigger than themselves. They want to feel like they have a mission. They want to feel like they have a community. They want to feel like they contribute and people care about them contributing and other people are contributing back to them. That's it. You look across the political spectrum. I think that's how 90% of the people are, if not more. And, um, I look at that and I think that's all I wanted, you know, and that's what I want to give to other people. And when you don't have that, you're like, I just want to end it. And, um, and so how do I deal with it every day? It's just like, the question is, not so much what I want to die for, because at this point in my life, for me, that's the easy way out. And that's not to, that's not to make anybody feel bad about anybody who's committed suicide, because I think those people, they're not, they just don't feel like there's anything else they can do. But the question for me now is not what am I going to die for, but what am I going to live for? And I think that's the question, as cheesy as it sounds, is that, that I try to wake up for and fight for every day. Um, but and, and that looks different, you know, and it looks different every year and, and I'm growing and who I am as a veteran changes and my veteran, you know, my veteranness continues to be a core part of my identity, but I'm lucky to be able to add other things onto that, you know. Beautifully um, said, brother. I mean, a, really, it is. It's, it's, it's a, so, a wonderful sentiment and I'm glad you're in a place emotionally that you can express it freely and, and you know, it's weird just listening to you talk. I, I can hear the anger. I certainly can hear the emotion uh, when you talk about the stories and things that led you to your place. But I also can hear the relief in your voice when you tell me where you are now. And, and you can you can really feel the sense that you're kind of stronger now than you were before. Um, with that, let me ask you about the Sierra Club and your connection to North Face. How did that all come? You mentioned Adventure Not War, which is your you know, project to go to back to these places of combat and everything else to, to go see the beauty. But how does the Sierra Club and North Face fit into all this? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough. Um, so I started a company called Veterans Expeditions uh, with Nick Watson, who's a Gulf War One era ranger. And um, what ended up happening is a friend of mine from my brother's ex-girlfriend from high school's little brother started a company. They wanted to give money to veterans. I was the only veteran they knew. They reached out and said, you know, what can we do? And, and I, at the time, didn't want to 
start a company or whatever. And I said, hey, you know, here's all these great organizations doing all this great work. I was still just a couple years removed from, from playing rugby all the time. And I was like, check out these wheelchair rugby guys. They're total badasses. And, you know, look at these other people doing this great stuff. I had just started climbing. Uh, and in the interim, they looked at all these people. I went climbing. I took an Howard Bound for Veterans course. I came home from that Howard Bound for Veterans course. And I thought that was amazing. How do we keep that spirit alive when we don't have a base camp to return to? Because, like, I live in Boulder, Colorado at the time. I can't go dog sledding, you know, easily in Ely, Minnesota without Outward Bound. How do, I, how do we keep this alive? And they happen to call back and say, if we gave you money, what would you do? And I was thinking about it. And I said, I'd go climb a mountain with a group of vets. And uh, they gave me money, and we started Veterans Expeditions after that. And, um, and then from there, you know, we were running that mostly off of my credit card and and, and, and Nick's savings. And I knew the Sierra club at the time had a program, uh, run by a guy named Martin LeBlanc and it was a military family veterans initiative. And they were giving money to help get veterans and military families outdoors. And so I reached out to Martin and I said, Hey, look, I've started this great company. And I would known him because they had funded some of our work at veterans green job. I reached out to him and I said, Hey, I've started this company called veterans expeditions. I think this is right in line with what the Sierra club wants to spend its money on for, for helping to get military outdoors. If you give me the grant, I'll help teach you guys how you can use your existing outdoor programs, getting, I think at the time, 230, 235,000 people outside a year to do better outreach to the military. Because the way I look at it, you, you guys are telling me you got 2.1 million members and supporters. There's 2.5 million veterans. It takes an entire community that's got to get involved. It can't just be a right-left thing or whatever. So, I mean, if we got every member of the Sierra Club partnered up with a veteran, we, we'd have a great time, right? I mean, and, and, and he said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I love the way you're thinking. A couple months later, he says, hey, we've got a job opening. Why don't you apply? I ended up applying and um, getting to the Sierra Club, and we changed a little bit. We saw where the funding was going for the military program. We continued to give funding out, but then we developed a direct, um, you know, a direct service approach, and um, and that was the military outdoors program. That was six years ago. We've had some great people run and work that program. Josh Brandon, um, who actually is now an ambassador for outdoor research, and now a guy named Rob Vessels. Um, who runs the national program, doing fantastic work. He's a former infantry guy. And then out of the Southeast, we have Lonette Vestal, phenomenal guy um, who's running our program in the Southeast. And we have lots of amazing volunteers, some guys who've been medically retired, who, who they're volunteers, right? But they're doing full-time work basically to connect the veteran community to the outdoors. And it's everybody. I mean, we've worked with everybody from World War II veterans, um, all the way to, you know, guys who are getting out now who maybe didn't pour in Iraq or Afghanistan, but maybe they were in Libya, maybe they were in the Horn of Africa. All, you know, I mean, the, the military is everywhere, right? So mm-hmm. um, so it's been a great program. And, and we looked at it and we said, look, we're not going to do this program just for PTSD or just for um, disabled veterans. There's a lot of programs doing that. Because from our experience, what we had learned was a lot of guys and gals, even if they don't have a significant diagnosis or any diagnosis of PTSD are looking for a community. And a lot of folks who might have PTSD or some of these issues, but don't want to identify that or, or don't feel like they can go get help. And, and we're offering an, an, an outdoor adventure. They want to come out and they want to meet other veterans. And we've seen amazing things happen out of that process of people just getting together as veterans. And, um, and also, you know, meeting non-veterans in the outdoors. And that's really important, right? And really critical to building long-term community health is, we can't just say this is only a veteran issue and only veterans can take care of veterans. It's bullshit. It might make sense right away when somebody comes home to be with only veterans, but over time we've got to be, you know, we've got to transition from active duty to active citizenship. And that means interacting with other veterans and non-veterans alike. 
And, you know, what we found is, is that when we can show like a guy like Sam Magro from Montana Alpine guys or Ben, Ben Zavora from, um, uh, uh, Beartooth, uh, powder guides, or, you know, any of the team like Bruce uh, Lavoie from Oars, who we do a lot of whitewater rafting with when a veteran sees a non-veteran and they say, well, you've got, you're, you're putting me on belay so I can go ice climbing and you're teaching me this, man, you know what? Non-veterans can be really cool and I can trust a non-veteran here. And, and that's an important part of that, right? It's to build onto that veteran core and say, yeah, you're a veteran, but you can be a mountain climber. You can be an ice climber. You can be a whitewater raptor. You can be a brother. You can be all these things. And we know we're doing well when somebody introduces themselves and says, you know, hey, my name is Tom and I'm a, you know, I'm a mountaineer and I'm a climber and, and hey, and I'm also a veteran. And, and that's an important part of who I am, but I'm all these other things too. So don't, don't try and put me in a box anywhere because I, I'm a dynamic individual. Um, and through that, you know, I got to meet Conrad Anker, who's, who's a world-class alpinist and just an incredible guy. And, um, Conrad said, Hey, you know, my first, the only real job I ever had was teaching mountaineering to Marines back in the day. And, uh, I'd love to get involved. And we came up with some ideas and we got involved and through Conrad, I got to know the North face and the North face got to know me. And they said, Hey, we love your story. Uh, we want to be really careful how we approach this. We don't want to make this look like it's any sort of exploitation. So, you know, it was, a, it was a long, a lot of conversations, and um, I'm lucky enough that they chose to, um, there's a lot of veterans they could have chose. There's a lot of great men and women doing amazing things for the veteran community and the veteran community outdoors as well. And I was just lucky enough to get to be the face and be in the right place at the right time and, and have Conrad's friendship and a lot of people at the North Face, man. I've got to climb with Alec Honnold and, and other people outside of the North Face, man. I got to, you know, people want to help. People want to find a way to connect to their service members, regardless of their feelings about the war um, or any war. They want to help, and they recognize the power of service and what, what, what our brothers and sisters have done for their country, and they want to help. And we were lucky enough to be able to give them an opportunity to help. And, I mean, it's, um, it's been fantastic. It's a great relationship, and I'm super, super thankful, and I've had other – you know, strong relationships with everybody from Keen at, at times and, and Merrill Footwear and Faction Skis and Combat Flip Flops. And I mean, there's been a lot of brands. You know, Yeti's been a great supporter. Um, Native Eyewear has been a fantastic supporter. Uh, I know I'm leaving people off and, and I hope they don't get upset. I, I hope I hope they can forgive me for that. But we've had, <laughs> you know, Camelback has been great. There's just been a lot of really great people and we've given them an opportunity. And, and I think it's tough, right, because there's all sorts of people that they could support. And, um, everybody only has so much resources they can give. And, um, but I've, I've been super lucky with the North Face and the Sierra Club. A lot of people don't realize the long, long military history with the Sierra Club. You know, um, the first veteran outing that we talk about, right, was John Nair took Teddy Roosevelt out and we, we got Yosemite National Park out of it, um, with President Roosevelt and the Buffalo Soldiers who are our nation's first park, you know, uh, uh, national park tenants. And, David Brower, who ensured that the Grand Canyon, you know, runs wild and free in Dinosaur National Monument. He was a World War II vet to, you know, Doug Peacock and Kim Crumbo, who uh, were both Vietnam vets and have been very involved in the environmental movement. And, uh, you know, Kim lives up the road here in Ogden, Utah, and he's been a phenomenal mentor. To Jesse Logan, who's a Vietnam-era veteran, who, you know, is one of the world's foremost um, foremost experts on whitebark pine, which is a critical uh, food source for the grizzly bear, and um, that is probably one of our most popular programs that we run every year with Jesse. And you know, we have all these vets who show up for this backcountry ski clinic, and they're like, "Oh, I don't, 
I don't want to do anything. I don't want to learn anything about the environment. You know, I don't give me this environmental hoodoo bullshit. I'm just here to ski. And by the end of it, they're like, holy cow, the white bark pine is the most interesting thing. Like, who knew that a tree was so cool? <laughs> um, you know, and that's just that experience of the outdoors and the adventure and, and, and what I think all people are looking for, but what I think veterans and service members are looking for really specifically, right, which is connection to something larger than themselves, camaraderie, service, and a sense of purpose. Yeah. And that's what, you know, and that's what, and that's what we're trying to give people through the outdoors. And, um, you know, and the brands we work with and that we've been able to align with, like the North Face, they believe in that. Uh, they put their money where their mouth is. And, and there's a lot of great, again, I mean, I, you know, a lot of great brands who are trying to do that in a lot of different ways. And, um, I mean, look, know, there's a lot of, like, I, so. Obviously, it's working. Like, I mean, you've got such a great following. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And there is a, a, a connection to the, the fact that all these companies and the connective tissue between them all are willing to step up and, and be part of this tells you not only the desire to help, but that community that you're talking about. It's not just about helping. It's about being part of it. You know, it, it's we're not here totally. for charity. We're, we're here to stand next to you, not give to you. And I think that that's an important piece of it. By the way, you mentioned Josh Brandon before, uh, also a guest on the Hazard Ground podcast. One of our first, uh, Josh was on uh, one of our earlier episodes, so go back and check that one out. But before yeah, we, we, we wrap things up, I just wanted to ask you from a standpoint of you know, PTSD, what would you say to somebody, whether it's a vet or somebody who knows a vet that may be struggling, what's, what's your message to them? Yeah, I mean, stand by him. Give a hand up not a handout, you know, um, get them outside best you can. Uh, just listen. Don't try and necessarily provide, um, any solutions. Cause it's, you know, it's going to look different. Everybody's path is going to look different. The only thing that I think is a guaranteed support is getting people outside, whatever that looks like, birding, gardening, mountaineering, take a walk in the park, um, stare at the grass coming up through the sidewalk cracks. Um, and then, uh, you know, offer them support, maybe help point them in the right direction, but you can't force people into things. Ultimately, you know, people need help, but you, like you said, you got to stand next to them. Um, like the guys at Team Rubicon say, right, it's, it's about veterans empowerment versus veterans service, and that's a critical difference. Um, appreciate what all the veteran service organizations have done and try to do, but I think we've, like Team Rubicon says, we're a veteran empowerment organization. I think that's, you know, we want to empower people to make a change in their own lives and, and, and to find that pathway. And, um, you know, all of us have to do a better job destigmatizing mental health challenges. Uh, but I think, you know, somebody, if somebody's a veteran, I'm like, Hey, like first thing, let's get you outside. Let's find a way to help you build your community. Let's connect you to some things you love, um, or might love. And, um, and let's move from there. And, and that pathway to healing is going to look different, but, um, and there's going to be a lot of failure along the way and there's going to be some challenges and it's still going to hurt. And, and getting healthy doesn't mean that you never have a bad day. Um, but again, going back to the outdoors, I mean, the research we're doing, you know, we know that a night outside can uh, decrease post-traumatic stress symptoms from baseline 27%, reduce overall stress 19%, and increase sleep for up to a week later for up to an hour to an hour and a half. And there's nothing pharmacologically that I'm aware of that does that. Uh, I, I got to get outside more. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a combination of beauty. I think it's a combination of awe. I think it's a combination of the conversations you have with people in the outdoors that you just don't have elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, and unburdening yourself. It's, it's all there, brother. I mean, you know, what you're doing again is, 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 I think it's perfect. I mean, it really, it just, it meets the needs and, 
you know, getting people together, community and all that stuff. Uh, I just can't thank you enough for all that you've done for veterans and, and sharing your personal story with us. Because, you know what, Stacy, as much as you've probably told the story before, it probably doesn't get any easier um, to say certain parts of it. And the fact that you were so candid and so honest with us means the world to us here on the podcast. And I know the people listening uh, certainly appreciate you doing that. And we just want you to keep doing what you're doing, man, whether it's with, with the North Face, Sierra Club, Adventure Not War, whatever it is. You know, keep giving back, and I know that, uh, you know, on the opposite end of all this, you'll certainly feel a lot better about yourself, but you'll certainly be rewarded for it because that's, you know, that's in your heart, brother. I can feel it. Well, thanks. You know, thank you for giving back and giving an opportunity for people to speak and share stories. It's awesome. And I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, right, if we're not going to help each other, who will? And I, and I will say that part of the reason I'm able to be so open and honest is because of the community that I'm in. You know, I have an amazing partner. I've got a great family. I have great friends um, in and out of the veteran community. And uh, because of that, I know that I can go out and take a beating and uh, come back in and people are going to help me get better and, and they're going to push me right back out. And that's one of the, you know, I mean, even cash is as contentious as our political world is right now. One of the things I really love is, you know, I can get in arguments with my veteran buddies. We can be shouting at each other and yelling at each other and going after each other. And then afterwards, give each other a hug and say, Hey, you doing okay? You know, you know let's go for it. Let's go for a hike. Let's go for a run. Let's go for this. And, um, you know, I hope all people, whether they're veterans or not, and I hope we as veterans can remember that commonality and that common humanity and, and be a little bit kinder to each other and a little bit more graceful for one another. And that doesn't mean we stop making fun of each other and giving each other a hard time and finding humor in dark spaces because that's all really important. But I think if we can do that, um, we can be the leaders that this country needs as veterans and, and hopefully inspire other people that same level of kindness and grace that we as a veteran community show each other every day, you know, and it's, um, yeah, it's great. Right. Like as a veteran, I've never, I've had more buddies than, you know, who I've served with say, Hey, I love you. And try saying that sometimes to some of the guys you haven't been to war with, right. And see their reaction, but right. you've been to war with somebody, you tell them you love them, man, it, that's no thing, right? Of course you're going to love them. Of course you're going to tell people that. And so that's one of the things I think we as veterans have, you know, it's our duty to teach that. And it's our duty to share that with the rest of the community. And, if, and hopefully, you know, that's, that's what my grandpa would want, and that's what my great-aunt Mildred would want. And uh, i got to say, I'm still just trying to follow their lead. Stacy Bear, thank you so much for joining us. God bless you, brother. You too. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.